Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for just this great time of having our church family come together this morning to worship and praise you and your son and your spirit, God. Thank you for returning many from times away, some vacation, uh, some from even sickness, Lord, and just a, a myriad of happenings. And it's just good to be back together uh, with, with many in our church family. Lord, we pray that you have been pleased uh, and accepting of our worship this morning. And now we want to continue to worship you through the preaching and teaching of your word. Lord, help me to be clear in the proclamation of your truth and give us all listening ears and hearts that desire to know you better through your word, to apply it. We pray all of these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Second Thessalonians, friends. We will continue on in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where this morning we are going to talk about restraint or even the restrainer. So this week I've been trying to just kind of think of some things that that restrain or that that hold back something else. And you know, some of the obvious things would be like safety restraints. We have things like seat belts in our cars and car seats for our kiddos. Yesterday we happened to be driving right by Magic Mountain. I thought, man, we got been to Magic Mountain since we've been back. And uh, you see these crazy roller coasters and thank the Lord there's restraints on some of them. Sometimes you got restraints on your lap and restraints here, you know, and everywhere. And there's another kind of restraint. Uh, sometimes we have restraints like a uh, even a straight jacket, right? Something that ho- helps somebody from, say, hurting themselves kind of thing. I even, uh, uh, when I was working on one of my early movies, I, and my character had to be in a straight jacket. And I'm kind of claustrophobic a little bit, you know? That was bizarre. Did not like it. Did not like it at all. And they had me running around, and I mean, it was real. It was absolutely real, you know, just like, ah! And uh, uh, when, where, where especially where we came from, um, up in the, the North State, we had dams all over the place, right? You have Shasta Dam, and we had we had a Trinity Dam, and these dams are restraining or holding back water. At least they used to. Uh, from what I hear, Trinity Dam, that's where we would always get our power from for uh, Weaverville, and it, the water is so low that they are not getting any power that everybody has now paying like twice as much to go through PG&E to get their power. Um, rules for games. When we play games, we have rules, right? And those rules act as a, a restraint, hopefully, from um, people making up their own rules, which, I don't know, I don't think I've ever been accused from that, have I, gang? You know, my family, they're laughing, so, yeah. Uh, or, or from cheating, uh, but there are house rules, and you're allowed to have house rules for your games, right? Um, I was thinking uh, uh, bowling even has certain restraints. You can put restraints up for the kids so the ball doesn't go in the gutter. We have laws. Laws help to restrain, restrain crime. Uh, one of the ones that, that's like a personal peeve, it drives me nuts, is we often travel on this one road up in Santa Clarita, and it's just a two-lane double yellow, and people pass on that double yellow like all the time. And yesterday, man, my patience was tried because the guy is going like 30 miles an hour in a 50, you know, and, and I'm like, I will not pass. I will not cross that double yellow. It restrained me. Uh, the police, the police offer restraint from crime as well. Uh, how often do we um, are driving along, and all of a sudden you realize that 
there's the cop sitting over there with his radar gun. And what do you do? You slow down. You slow down. And they have things like handcuffs to offer restraints or the the cage cars. I remember when my dad was a police officer back in the day, back in like the 70s, he used to come home in his in his squad car, his cop car, and, and he would actually let us kids like, you know, kind of play in it. Like we knew the things that we couldn't touch and whatnot, but yeah, those days are long over, long over. Jail and prison offers restraint from evil. I got to tell you, I'll be honest and say, I wish I had a restrainer when we were back in Kansas because we went and had frozen custard just about every night we were there. And I needed some kind of restraint. And alas, there was none, none, no self-control, no restrainer. We just went and ate custard every day. Frozen custard, gang. It's a Midwest beautiful thing, beautiful thing. Well, this morning, again, we are going to learn about restraints. We are going to learn about another kind of restraint or even a restrainer and a restrainer that is even currently active at work in our world restraining, but one that will also at some point be removed. So let's go ahead and and hopefully you're there in Second Thessalonians chapter two. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to go ahead and, and take us back to uh, chapter two, verse one. So we just kind of get reminded of, of where we're at in our text here as we get to verses 6 and 7, which we will look at today. The Apostle Paul writes this, Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed. This is the word of God. We're going to pause here. Go ahead and take your seats. Now, just so we can have a little bit of review here. Because if we don't, I'm, I, I'm fearful that verses 6 and 7 will be even tougher to understand. If we go back to June 5th, we started Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which finds Paul returning to a subject that he had first talked about in First Thessalonians chapter 5. That is the day of the Lord. And just as a, a very quick reminder, the day of the Lord is a time of God's future judgment and wrath upon unbelievers that centers around the return of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the day of the Lord can be understood in a more general sense and include what will take place uh, during the great tribulation time, Jesus's actual return uh, to earth to make war with his enemies, his great white throne judgment, and even his final judgment that will destroy the current heavens and earth before he recreates them. It can also be understood as that very specific day 
the day of the Lord, of Jesus' literal return back to earth, when as John tells us in Revelation 19 and verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And of course, he returns on that white horse to earth. Only context really makes it clear uh, how the phrase is to be understood. Now, along with this, we learned from verses 1 through 3a that the reason Paul returns to this theme of the day of the Lord is because the Thessalonians were still confused. They were confused about the timing of Jesus' return, even for the rapture and then his judgment and wrath. And the reason they were confused is because they were, they were under some pretty severe, heavy-duty persecution and affliction. And they were, they were maybe mistaking that for God's judgment and wrath, thinking, uh-oh, the day of the Lord is already upon us. And maybe we've somehow missed even the rapture. And maybe even Jesus has returned to earth. And the added whammy is that there were these false teachers that had showed up. Now, we're trying to convince them of these things. And no doubt these were uh, some of the Jews who were jealous that many had turned away from Judaism and were now following this new religion we call Christianity. So Paul assures them, he assures them that's not the case. You have not missed the rapture or the Lord's return. And you should not be deceived by, by anything the false teachers were trying to convince them of. Paul then gets even more specific for them, however, in regards to a timeline of these end times events. So so that they can be able to know with certainty when the day of the Lord would actually be happening. This then took us to the next week, June 12th, where we began looking at verses 3b to 7 which gives us three preludes to the day of the Lord. Actually, I think we went a little further. I think we went down into uh, to 9 and verse 10 uh, when we did that. Three preludes to the day of the Lord. In other words, three events that have to take place, that must take place before the day of the Lord will, will happen. And during that message, we looked at the first two. The first being that something called the apostasy has to occur. And we learn that apostasy or rebellion is closely tied to someone that we were introduced to in verse 3. The man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. The revealing of the man of lawlessness to the world is the second prelude to the day of the Lord. Now, we learn several things about this man of lawlessness. We learn from Scripture that he is also called the son of destruction. It's that same word that Jesus used of Judas Iscariot when he called him the son of perdition uh, in John seventeen twelve, which just means to fully destroy. And in the context of, 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 of these passages, it means permanent destruction, no salvation. And in reference to the man of lawlessness, it applies both in the sense of his own inevitable permanent destruction, as well as the destruction of others that he will seek to accomplish. Secondly, we also learned by examining other passages that this man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, is also the same person that we see in Revelation 13 known as the beast. The beast. 
Thirdly, we learn that he is against God in every way, shape, or form. He hates God. He is wicked. He is evil personified. And this is because when he does come on the scene and he is revealed, we saw in the scripture in our text that he will be energized, he will be powered by Satan and will have the ability to perform miracles, even raising from the dead. But these miracles will be in order to deceive people into thinking that he is the Christ. And in this sense, he is a false Christ, but he is an extremely powerful and dangerous false Christ. We have to not forget that. Fourthly, we learn that he shows up to lead a rebellion against God. He will demand to be worshipped and in fact will enter into a rebuilt temple, desecrate it, and take his seat, displaying himself as being God. And this is called both the abomination of desolation in Daniel and Matthew, and will be the ultimate act of blasphemy, especially to the Jews, and this is what we call the apostasy. Now, when we went back to Daniel and Matthew, we also saw a timeline there where once this man of lawlessness commits this abomination of desolation, there will be a three and a half year period called the Great Tribulation until at the end of that, Christ returns back to earth and defeats him. Amen? Amen. Now, just so we're clear, this revealing of the man of lawlessness, that abomination of desolation, his leading rebellion against God and his saints again is the apostasy, which must happen before the day of the Lord and Christ's return back to earth. Now, this morning, we pick up with our third prelude to the day of the Lord, and that is that the restrainer must be removed. The restrainer must be removed. Now, imagine that you're standing at one of my, uh, one of my favorite local uh, lunch places, uh, Yaki's, over here on the corner. I hope you're laughing because you like Yaki's. I know, some people call it Yaki's. I call it Yaki's, okay? You're waiting for your lunch, you're ordering, and you hear this loud squeal of wheels and crash, boom, there's an accident. You turn around just in time to see these two cars collide. Now, you you have a a basic idea as to what you saw and what happened in this accident. But as it happens, there wasn't just you standing there on the Yaki's corner, but there were some people on the corner across from you and Caddy Corner and to the right. And everybody had this ability to see this accident take place. So the police show up and they're gathering all of you witnesses up and, uh, and asking you questions and wanting you to tell what happened and what you realize is though you thought you saw it pretty clearly there's all these other stories and they all have different elements and different things that they have talked about and maybe you're not quite so so sure uh about what you saw and it's just not as clear when you get these other factors from these other witnesses let me just say that's a bit how i feel in regards to our passage of scripture today okay it, it, it turned out to be a, a toughie. It was one I started studying even while I was back in Kansas. And, and, uh, and it's just been a, a very interesting one. Because uh, kind of at the outset, you go, oh, I think I get that. That seems pretty, pretty simple, you know, straightforward. And then you start digging into it. And you get into the, uh, the, um, 
the study aspects, and then when you actually start talking about other people's viewpoints and commentators and reading what other people have written about this passage, this, these couple of verses, it starts boggling your mind, right? And you go, okay, Lord, please, you just need to help me keep this straight. Help me keep this straight, okay? So that's a little bit how I feel. You have input from, from scholars and pastors and theologians, and, and you realize that this is anything but simple. That is my goal. I hope, I, I want to be clear. I want this to be clear for us this morning. And, and before we start picking apart the text, just let me give you, I'm going to go ahead and give you what is probably the most common way to understand verses 6 and 7. I'm not saying it's the absolute correct way yet. We'll get into our study. It's just probably the most common. So so I'm going to kind of insert some things here, okay? So it, it makes it makes sense, and you, and you can kind of picture or get where the, the, the most common viewpoint is. So if we were starting in verse 6, it would read something like this. And you Thessalonians know, because I have previously told you, Paul tells us from verse 5, right? What restrains the man of lawlessness now, so that in God's time the man of lawlessness will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only the Holy Spirit, who now restrains the man of lawlessness, will do so until the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. That's, again, just probably the most common way of understanding this passage. And you might be thinking, well, if that's, if that's the case, and, and if that's the, what Paul meant, why didn't he just kind of say it that way? Because when you go back to that verse 5 again, Paul makes it clear that these were things he already taught them and that he expected that they would have remembered, which is kind of unfortunate for us in a way. Uh, then we have to do a little bit more digger deeping to figure this out. That being said, let's jump right in and see if this indeed is the best understanding or if there's something else that we should uh, consider in these verses. Again, the restrainer must be removed. And we're going to have four subpoints uh, this morning. And the first we'll call letter A, and it's this restrained before revealed. Restrained before revealed. All right? Uh, this goes back to verse six. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. He will be revealed. Now, we've got many things to. Um, to address in this one, I apologize if, if our wording is uh, kind of uh, is, is mixed up there, but restrained before revealed. All right, we've got a bunch of things to address. First, what do the Thessalonians know? Right? He says, you know. Uh, how are we to understand the word now? Uh, what is the restraining and who or what is doing it? Who is the him that is apparently being restrained? Who, in whose time and, and who will be revealed? The restrainer? The restraint or someone or something that's being restrained. We have to remember context, right? Context is always king. And the context, going back to verses 3 and 4, is indeed the man of lawlessness. That's who we've been talking about, who Paul's been talking about. And though Paul had already taught them these things before, he's now giving them this timeline that we talked about. That's why he says in verse 6, and you know what restrains, because, again, he had previously told them. He just hadn't told us, and so we're trying to figure this out. Now, right off the bat, you need to know that the word him there in verse 6 is not actually a part of the Greek text, but it is supplied because of your Bible translators. In fact, only the King James and the New King James keep it out writing, and now you know what is restraining. 
that he may be revealed in his own time. Or the King James, and now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his timeth. Yeah, timeth doesn't really say that. I'm just throwing that in to make it sound good. The word order in the Greek is actually, and now what restrains, you know. In other words, if we were looking at this verse just on its own by itself, we wouldn't know who or what is being restrained. Simply that something is being restrained. All right, let's talk about this word restrains. The Greek word is kateko, kateko. And it can have several meanings, two of which are the ones that usually get applied to this passage. The problem is, is they're both very different. They mean somewhat different things. The first and the most common use for this word kateko is to hold back or suppress, hence our translation, restrains. Now, not as common is its meaning to rule or prevail. And if that's the case, then we might have a translation that says, and you know what rules or prevails now. And you go, yeah, that's, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a big difference, kind of a big change in meaning from how it's usually understood as restrains. Furthermore, Paul chose to use the grammatical neuter version of the verb versus the masculine or feminine And in doing so is now implying a force rather than a person. And what's interesting is that when we get to verse 7, guess what? Paul's going to change back. He's going to knock off the neuter and now go to a masculine uh, verb with a masculine article in front of it to read he who now restrains in verse 7, implying that the restrainer is a person and a masculine one at that. So which is it? Is it restrainer holding back or is it ruler prevailer? Is it is it you know what restrains or is it you know what rules? In other words, the restrainer can be a positive force holding back something evil or a negative evil force that's currently ruling the world. The problem with ruling or prevailing is that it it tends to work okay in verse 6, but it kind of starts to unravel and and fall apart when we get to verse 7 and even 8. So just let's do this. Let's let's substitute rules instead of restraints. The text would read something like this. And you know what rules now. So that in his time he will be revealed, presumably the man of lawlessness. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now rules, that now referring to the time period of the Thessalonians, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed. So maybe you kind of notice verse 6 sounded okay, but verse 7 starts to get a little squirrely here if we go with that, that interpretation. Here's the problem. If the man of lawlessness is ruling and then is taken out of the way, he can't exactly be revealed anymore. Right? It just can't happen. Furthermore, it is Jesus who will slay the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth, but that will only happen at Jesus' return, which comes after the man of lawlessness is revealed. 
Furthermore, Paul indicated this restraining was happening now, meaning in Paul's day, in the Thessalonians' time. But the man of lawlessness couldn't be ruling back in the day of the Thessalonians because he hasn't yet been revealed. And again, he couldn't be revealed if he was already taken away. All of this to say, the best understanding of kateko is as a restraint. Something or someone holding back or suppressing something else. Now, we'll, we'll come back to who or what this restraining force is a little bit later. Just remember that as Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, he clearly states that there was currently a restraining force at work. Okay, Currently a restraining force at work. The question is, If the man of lawlessness has still not yet come, even today, then the restraining force back in Paul and the Thessalonians' time was not holding back the man of lawlessness. So who or what was it restraining? You see how this gets kind of intense, you know? Now we're we're going to we're going to get there too, all right, and 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 we'll we'll get to all of these. First, I want us to continue on just with the rest of verse six, which reads this: so that in his time he will be revealed. And revealed is the same root word that we saw back in verse three from apocalypto, which is that word we get apocalypse from, and it has the literal meaning to make manifest. Or reveal a thing that was previously secret or hidden. And who is it that will be revealed? Again, going back to verse 3, we understand that it is the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who will be revealed. Now, we then want to ask, maybe in whose time will he be revealed? Because the text simply says, his time. Uh, It's possible. When you look down at verse 9 and the fact that Satan is the one uh, giving power to this man, that Satan could be the one orchestrating this timing. The problem with that is that the New Testament is very consistent in the fact that it's always God who is sovereignly in control over end times events. All of them. Amen? Amen. God is the one sovereignly in control. In fact, we might imagine that if Satan could have his way, that he might have empowered a man of lawlessness much sooner. Maybe when you look back at some of our characters in world history, maybe he tried, right? Maybe he tried when we see some of the despots and and tyrannical leaders that that we have had in, in the world from then until now. The truth is, God has said in Isaiah 46, 10, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, right? Speaking of the sovereignty of God. And while Job declared to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who can thwart God's purpose? Nobody. Not Satan, not an angel, not you and I, not any anything in this world. The restraint needs to happen, friends, so that the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, the son of destruction will be revealed in God's proper time 
as opposed to Satan being able to kind of step in and, and try to do things on his timetable. Well, this is going to take us to our, our letter B, our letter B subpoint. Lawlessness at work. Lawlessness at work. And we're going to see this in verse 7a. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Okay, so we've talked already about lawlessness. When we were back in verse 3, we learned it was the, is the Greek word anomia. And it refers not to the absence of law, like lawless, like there is no law. But rather to the violation of law to transgress the law. In the New Testament, it's understood as breaking God's divinely appointed laws. First John chapter 3 and verse 4, John tells us everyone who practices sin also practices what? Lawlessness. There you go. Anomia. And sin is lawlessness. Which is also to say lawlessness is sin. Right? Interchangeable in that sense. But in verse 7... It's interesting because we have this word mystery, the mystery of lawlessness kind of sounds like a Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys mystery, right? The mystery of lawlessness. uh, It's this uh, word mysterion, mysterion, which means secret, secret. And in the New Testament, it speaks of something that has been hidden that is not yet fully manifest or come to light. In Romans 16 and verse 25, Paul refers to the gospel and the preaching of Christ as, quote, the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, end quote. Obviously, there's there's nothing secret about sin in our world, right? Or, Or even lawlessness in the world. So we think, well, what is Paul referring to then when he calls it this mystery of lawlessness? And the fact that this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Well, that word for, for the mystery, ties this back to verse 6. And more specifically, to what it is that needs restraining. Now remember that in that, that phrase, what restrains him, I told you that there's no actual him in the Greek text. This is something I, I believe that was added to some of our modern translations. I would say even in, in slight error. I, I just believe that the King James and the New King James got it more right when they left it out. So we asked then, what is being restrained? Or, or let's say, so what is being restrained and is not currently or in Paul's day the man of lawlessness, but, but rather it's the mystery of lawlessness which is already at work. So that is what is being restrained. This mystery of lawlessness already at work. At work is that word energeo. It means energy. We saw it in verse 9 in reference to the work of Satan. In other words, this, this mystery of lawlessness was already at work back in Paul's day. And it continues to be at work even up to today. So we might ask, what's the difference then between the mystery of lawlessness versus just plain old simple lawlessness? Well, we know that sin has been in the world since when? The fall, right? The fall of man back in the Garden of Eden. And it's only gotten worse since then. 
In fact, it got bad enough that God actually decided to wipe out every living creature off the face of the earth, save for Noah and his family when he sent the worldwide flood. And yet, even after the flood, God still acknowledged in Genesis 8 and verse 21 that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Meaning that would still be the course of man's heart, even proceeding from that time on. The Lord told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Go ahead and keep your bookmark there in 2 Thessalonians and turn to 2 Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy. It should just be a few pages over. You shouldn't have to go too far. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> Paul is writing this second letter to his protege, Timothy. And he shared with him some things about the times to come and, and what would happen in the last days. So we read this, which basically we know that we're in the last days, right? From the time Christ descended back into heaven, the church has been in the last days. But he writes this, chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these." For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then if we skip down to verse 13, he says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is what we know, right? This is what we know to be true. This isn't the mystery part. We know that eventually at some point, someday though, this lawlessness, which we understand is fueled by Satan, will lead to and ultimately culminate in the the Satan-empowered man of lawlessness, that son of destruction, the beast, as he's revealed at the apostasy. So we, we have this, this mystery of lawlessness that, that now continues to, to worsen as part of Satan's ultimate plan that will in the future culminate in this man of lawlessness at the apostasy. Go ahead and turn to 1 John. 1 John. We'll keep going to the right there. We'll pass over Thessalonians and get to 1 John. Chapter 2. If you remember a few weeks ago, there was a word that I said you all probably are thinking when we started talking about the lawless man of lawlessness, but I never said the word. You remember that? It's time to say it. It's time to say it. We'll see if you pick up what it is. I'm sure you'll get it. So here in 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 18. 
John writes this, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, and let me just put in parentheses here, this is Antichrist, singular, in the future. Even now, many Antichrists, plural, and at the time of John's writing, have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. So that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not yet written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. You get that, right? That's the definition there of Antichrist, both singular and plural. The Antichrist and Antichrists are those who deny that Jesus is the Christ and deny the Father and the Son. And you might be thinking, but wouldn't that mean that would be true of any believer, right? Yes, exactly. Anyone who denies God the Father and Jesus the Son and denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, is an antichrist. Then there are those who even go a step further and are actually false Christ, such as we see in Matthew 24 and verse 5, where Jesus says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. End quote. And that is exactly, friends, what the man of lawlessness, the ultimate Antichrist, will try and do. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4. Maybe just one page. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. Here we read, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So Antichrist was a present reality, right, in terms of um, not the what we think of as the man of lawlessness, but Antichrist in terms of how it was just defined as people that will deny Jesus as the Christ, and it also has a future reality as well in the man of lawlessness. Turn again to Second John, maybe just another, another uh, turn of the page or so. Second John, verse 7, John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. He's not necessarily talking about just one person as antichrist there. He's talking about back then. 
anyone that would, that would not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh is known as an antichrist. So any people who don't acknowledge Jesus as God incarnate, who came in human flesh, they are deceivers, they are antichrists, they are denying Jesus' humanity, which was a, a feature of heretical teaching back then called Gnosticism, which believed that all matter was evil. So therefore, Jesus yeah, couldn't be this human person or else then he'd be evil. And who is behind all of this? Again, we have to acknowledge who is behind all of this from the Garden of Eden until now, Satan himself. And when we get to the point of the man of lawlessness, then back in, in um, 2 Thessalonians 2, down in verse 9, which we talked about weeks ago, it's crystal clear that Satan is the one behind it all. He is the architect of a plan to overthrow God, to overthrow God's law and establish his own rule. So going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7. So go ahead and hope you have your bookmark there. You can just flip right back. 2 Thessalonians 2 7. We know that sin and iniquity is in the world. We know it's going from bad to worse. With the tempter and deceiver, Satan behind it all. But this mystery of lawlessness is something that wasn't revealed or understood in Scripture until the teachings of Paul and John here in the New Testament. Now it's revealed that there is a more sinister plan in place by Satan which includes using those who are seeking to usurp Christ as they intentionally deny He and the Father and they deny Jesus as God come in human flesh. They are seeking to deceive and mislead by calling themselves Christ and prophets when they really are antichrists, false Christs, false prophets. That's kind of the difference there in this this mystery of lawlessness, this, this, this full-on plan of Satan to usurp God, usurp Christ, that will culminate again, ultimately, in the man of lawlessness. The satanic mystery of lawlessness will have its fulfillment in the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the beast, the antichrist, the one who we saw in 2.4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then in verse 9, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness. This is the difference. This brings us to letter C, our third subheading, the restrainer removed, the restrainer removed. We look at verse 7, 7b, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now we're back to that word kateko. But this is where Paul changes the gender from neuter back to masculine. So it's he who now restrains. And it's time to ask that question. Okay, who is doing the restraining? Who is it? Who is holding back or suppressing 
the evil associated with the mystery of lawlessness until his time to be revealed. And this has been the age-old question since Paul wrote this, that theologians and scholars and pastors and preachers and lay people have knocked around and come up with all kinds of different ideas as to who or what the restrainer is. By the way, I think we can now safely say we know it is both a person and a force based on just the grammar here in our text. Let me just give you the top ones, what people have come up with. All right. Here's here's your your kind of your top 10, if you will. Uh, One, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire and its rulers were actually restrainers of this sort of evil. The preaching of the gospel was a restrainer of evil. The, The binding of Satan by believers uh, would, 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 has been understood as what restrains the Jewish state, which restrained the Roman Empire until 70 AD, is one they knock about. The Old Testament Mosaic Law, some consider that the restrainer. The church has been called the restrainer. Human government, right? The principle of law and order has been understood as the restrainer. Even human morality. Christians, with their spiritual gifts, have sometimes been called the restrainer. Even the archangel Michael, some have said, is the restrainer. And then I like this last one. (laughs) Somebody said, we're not to know because it's impossible and useless for a modern interpreter to try to discover what Paul was talking about. (laughs) Maybe we should just go with that one, you know, (laughs) call it a day. (laughs) There's one problem with all of these. There's one problem with all of these, except for the archangel Michael, except for him, they're all human forces. Did you get that? They're they're all about man, people. Even the preaching of the gospel and the church are still human related. And remember what Satan can do when the seed of the gospel is sown in someone's heart. Remember that Matthew 13, he can come and snatch it away. And unfortunately, the church... The church hasn't exactly been able to restrain evil in its doors, has it? So we ask, can any human force actually be more powerful than the Satan-infused mystery of lawlessness? And the answer, friends, is no. No. Remember, a few weeks ago, that apart from God, Satan is the next most powerful being. Even the archangel Michael, looking back at Jude 9, quote, did not dare pronounce a railing judgment against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Right? No human being, institution, or even an angel can restrain the supernatural power of Satan who is behind the mystery of lawlessness And eventually the man of lawlessness. Now, of course, we left one possibility off the list, didn't we? One possibility off the list. And really, it is the only satisfactory one. The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God, who is both a force and a person. He is described in Scripture with the neuter noun Numa, which is spirit, as well as the masculine parakletos, the helper. In addition, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to restrain evil in our world. 
You might remember back in Genesis 6 how, quote, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And in Genesis 6, 3, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Well, 120 years from then was when God brought about the great flood. In other words, because of the wickedness of man, God removed his spirit from restraining the wickedness and evil of the day. Man got worse and then man was judged by God with the flood. And when Jesus announced his, his sending of the Holy Spirit in, in his place as the parakletos, the helper, right? Upper room with the disciples. He said in John 16 and verse 8, and he, the parakletos, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So there's an aspect of restraint against evil that the Holy Spirit provides as he can fix the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And especially, too, as he saves and indwells you and I, believers. In Romans 1, we see divine restraint towards immorality, homosexuality, perverse thinking, and improper behavior removed. As in verses 24, 26, and 28 tell us that God, quote, gave them over to these things. So, what happens when it's time for the man of lawlessness to be revealed? Look back at our text in verse 7. He, the Holy Spirit of God, is taken out of the way. That might sound a little weird to our, our way we think of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gets taken out of the way? You know, that sounds kind of strange, you know. The verb literally means to come to be. And it denotes change or transition to another place, as in to come to another place. The grammar also doesn't imply a forced change, but can just as easily be a voluntary one. And of course, God the Father is the one to direct both the Son and the Holy Spirit for His good purposes. Yes, they are all three 100% God, but perform different functions. The Son and the Spirit submitting themselves to the will of the Father. Oh, friends, this reminds us of the tremendous sovereignty of God, doesn't it? That he is the one ultimately in control here. That his Holy Spirit is the one been restraining and will restrain until God's proper timing. And then the Holy Spirit will be pulled back, will be taken away, removed. So that these other things will happen. We wrap up this morning with verse, just the first part of verse 8. Be very brief here. Our last subpoint: the man of lawlessness revealed. The man of lawlessness revealed. 8a, then that lawless one will be revealed. And as we've already learned, this will take place at the apostasy, the rebellion, the abomination of desolation, where the man of lawlessness again desecrates the temple, directs worship to himself as he displays himself as being God. So to wrap up what Paul has been 
wanting to help the Thessalonians with so that they would have a better understanding of end times events and and specifically to know that they were not yet in the day of the Lord. They hadn't missed anything. They hadn't missed the, the rapture. This wasn't the day of the Lord. Three things must take place. Three things. The restrainer will be removed. The man of lawlessness revealed and the apostasy happens now I, you know man i was just thinking hard this week <laughs> it's kind of an interesting section of text and you go what's the application here for us right because you go well as far as you're a believer you're not going to be around for any of this right you're not going to be around we're already going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ when he raptures his church or we die and go to be with him, whichever, whichever happens first. And, and I, I think, friends, the, the best way that we, can, that we can understand this morning and, and what I would have you take away, a couple of things. I already mentioned just, again, be reminded of the sovereignty of God. Right? The fact that God is indeed in control. And especially when we hear about this mystery of lawlessness and the fact that it's already at work, would any of us deny that there's some serious lawlessness going on out there? Fueled by Satan himself? Of course not. We see it all around us. But God is in control. Nothing will happen apart from him and his current plan. Satan can't usurp that plan. You and I can't usurp. Nobody can usurp that plan. So we praise him for his sovereignty. And there will come a day when his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that... That that day of the Lord happens and Jesus actually returns and he makes war and does away with the man of lawlessness. And secondly, lastly, friends, I think we just use this as, as a reminder that what we can do right now, what we should do right now, is we should preach the gospel we should share the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone who would listen. Because would, would we want anyone to go through this? Would we want anyone to have to experience this man of lawlessness or, or the apostasy and the, the rebellion and, and have to be around to see that restraint, the Holy Spirit removed and the crazy, grotesque, horrible things that are going to happen at that point? They need to be saved. People need to be saved. So let that be our focus. That we would focus on the good news of Jesus Christ. Acknowledging that we have this awesome creator God who has given us everything. He is the one, therefore, that gets to make the rules. He is the one in control. He is a perfectly holy and altogether righteous God who requires perfect obedience from his creation. We recognize as his creation that we have all broken his law. There's none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And of course, the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 6.23. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown where? Into the lake of fire. And as much as we might try or want to save ourselves or do all of our good deeds and our, and, our, and our good works, we realize that that's just rubbish. 
We can't kind of try to make our good deeds outweigh our bad. It's just never going to happen. We're reminded in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Because he knows that we would boast if we thought that we had any part in our salvation. And we need to know who Jesus is. That he became a sinless man, that he... He is indeed God incarnate. As Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And that Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, that he became sin for us, that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And friends, when we share these truths with people, then we we got to get to that last little moment there too where we say to them, friend, what will you do with this information? What will you do with this gospel message you have just heard? Will you forsake your way? Will you forsake your unrighteous thoughts? Will you return to the Lord so that the Lord will have compassion on you and to your God so that he will abundantly pardon you? For as Acts 17.30 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to, to men that all people everywhere should repent and call people to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. The only true hope in our world and for our, our world to come for those that would repent and believe. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Let's pray. Father, we, I, I thank you. This was a, a tough passage, Lord. and I pray. I pray that we would use something like this in these, these end times events that just seem so... So intense because they are that we will use these to spur us on to share Christ. And if there's anyone here this morning that needs to know Christ as their Savior and Lord, that they would repent and believe, Father. And Lord, we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.